سیاه تاکس Hello, I'm Justine Piccardy and I'm a writer and biographer. Welcome to a new series of Dior Talks. I'll be in conversation with a number of different women, all of whom have a profound connection with Dior's creative director, Maria Grazia Chiori. We'll be talking about their experience of feminism and what it means to them to be a woman, its challenges and its joys. Robin Morgan is an 80-year-old author and activist. She has written more than 20 books and is the leader of the US women's movement and co-founder of the Sisterhood is Global Institute and the Women's Media Center. Maria Grazia Chiori has celebrated Robin's work and used the titles of Robin's feminist trilogy in her Dior 2019 Autumn Winter collection. Sisterhood is powerful, sisterhood is global, and sisterhood is forever. Those words really speak so powerfully, but now here is the legendary Robin Morgan to speak to us again today. Well, I am thrilled today to be talking to Robin Morgan, who is a heroine of mine. Um, she could be called the, the mother of feminism, perhaps. And just as a brief introduction to her, she's written more than 20 books. She's a wonderful poet. She's a leader of the US women's movement, but really a leader of the global women's movement. She's co-founder of the Sisterhood is Global Institute and the Women's Media Center. And Maria Grazia Chiori has celebrated Robin's work in many ways and used the titles of Robin's feminist trilogy in her Dior 2019 Autumn Winter collection, Sisterhood is Powerful, Sisterhood is Global, and Sisterhood is Forever. So welcome, Robin. Uh. Thank you, Justine. It's an honor to be here. I would go anywhere for Maria Grazia. Um, I feel the same way. <laughs> it's a delight to meet you, even virtually. Uh, so I couldn't be more pleased. Well, we've got lots to talk about. And one of the things that we will talk about is your meeting with Maria Grazia and, and coming to a fashion show. But before we get to that, I'd like to go back in time because you are 80. You were born in 1941. That's right. I don't quite know how that happened because I blinked. Last week I was 38, it seems to me. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> you know, Shazam, there you are, you're 80. <laughs> uh, but yes, I am. I In January I turned 80. Mm. Seems really a grown up. Very grown up indeed. And you've seen this and, and led this massive change in in women's rights over the decades. But I was wondering, I mean, when you became active in, in the feminist movements and really shaped the feminist movements, I mean, for younger people, I'm 59, but for people that are, are much younger, I think it's sometimes hard for, for them to realize how different the world was <laughs> back then. Yes, very, very different. I mean, sexism still exists today, but the extraordinary institutionalized sexism. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, just for example, I couldn't, um, I was married at the time, I no longer am, uh, happily, uh, uh, but I, I couldn't get a, when I got married, I couldn't, um, I had to change my driver's license, my 
uh, savings account, my checking account, to his name, to Mrs., uh, yeah. I couldn't get them in my own name. I couldn't take a loan out. I couldn't get a mortgage in my own name. Rape in marriage was considered just normal. There was no, uh, you know, con- concept that that was a, an assault, that that was illegal. Never mind in the workplace. Never mind. Uh, there was no domestic violence law. Uh, there, this, I'm just speaking now in the United States, and in the rest yes. of the world, it was as bad or worse. So, uh, because you have it, you have sexism compounded by racism and by class and by poverty and by so many other things. So, and everywhere you turned, there was this boiling rage um, that women were beginning to feel. Uh, and of course, it came together with many other different things. It came together with the civil rights movement, the way it had. In the first wave of feminism, I mean, when suffrage came out of the abolitionist of slavery movement, the same happened in the in the 60s. Um, and it came together with the beginning in Ripple's invention of the pill. Yes. Uh, so you had a great many things uh, in a kind of cathexis, and it exploded. Um, but it's very difficult sometimes for younger women to, to even conceive of how how the strictures were. Uh, there were, of course, always rare individual women who broke through and who were permitted tokenism. Um, yes. You know, you're, you're, you're one and only poet, you're one and only um, among the boys, uh, you're one and only journalist, you're one and only... Um, but there was no idea of uh, a mass movement until uh, until it began. And once it began... It never stopped, despite the fact that with stunning <laughs> regularity, every two or three years, um, the media in this country and in fact worldwide would always proclaim, well, now the women's movement is surely dead. I remember that myself. I mean, when I first went to university um, in, when I was 18 in, in 1980, what was already proclaimed was that we were onto post-feminism because all the battles of feminism had been won and now it was all about post-feminism. It didn't take very long for me to realise as a as a student and then as a young journalist that not only we had we we hadn't reached post-feminism, that there were still battles of feminism to be fought. That's right, of course. I mean, it's it's uh, hilarious, in fact, that we were in post-feminism. We never were. We'll be in post-feminism when there is no such thing as a need for feminism, because there will be complete and total, not just equality, but transformation of our power relations as. Uh, as people. You um, were crucial in making that association between feminism and social justice and Mm -hmm. environmental activism, that you never just saw feminism as being um, the sole objective in a vacuum, that you put those different missions and challenges together right from the start in a, in a way that was very clear-sighted and really ahead of, the, of its time. Thank you. It, it seems to me they're, 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 you know, deeply interconnected, Justine. There's, I don't know a way to really separate them. I see feminism at the core because um, it's always seemed the best way to me to save the planet. Um, you can't very well take half the people on the planet and not listen to them and expect to get solutions if the same folks who brought you the problem to begin with are, are now offering you the solutions you might as well get pretty nervous but everywhere you look for example environmentalism um, and climate change I mean women are the primary water haulers and fuel gatherers of the world 
It's not coal and, and fossil fuels. It's, it's peat and wood um, and hauling water. So without women, you can't address environment. And the first cancers and the first um, stillborn births are t- because of climate change and climate damage, environmental disaster, they take their first tolls in, in cancers of the female reproductive system. So it always somehow one way or the other comes back home, if you know what I mean. Well, you also made that very interesting link in the idea of what rape meant, so that rape was also the rape of the planet, the rape of the mm-hmm. landscape. Yes. And it was an assault on our environment, you know, on Mother Nature, really. That's right. That's right. And I find it very interesting that it's women primarily who have led and are leading the environmental transformation, whether it was back with Rachel Carson, you remember her, uh, yes. or straight on up through Wangari Maathai and the Green Belt movement in Kenya and now uh, Greta Thunberg and my dear my dear sister friend uh, Jane Fonda has taken on this other additional crusade. She's juggling her crusades. It's not it's nothing woo woo mystical about you know well women have a deeper connection to the planet or I mean that's fine if you want to believe that 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 there's nothing wrong with that but but it's simply practical. Um, it 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 is that we have a, f- a fairly short amount of time to turn this around, and women are rolling up their sleeves and saying, "Okay, let's just enough mouthing, enough white papers, let's get to it." And I find that very heartening. And if you were to be able to talk to your younger self, to yourself, say at twenty-one, what what advice would you <laughs> say to that young woman? Oh, my God. I would say be less patient with men. Yes. You know, I was, even though I was called a man-hater and, you know, I mean, you you can imagine. I can imagine. Even before the Internet, they were doing their little hating numbers. Um, But nonetheless, I, my God, my patience was endless. I just gave them another chance and another chance and another. And I would just simply say, pull up your socks, boys. Um. Uh, you know, come get to it. You can be sane, intelligent human beings. Just apply yourself. Don't wring your hands. You can't wring your hands and roll up your sleeves at the same time. So let's just get to it. I would be, I think, much firmer, compassionate, certainly. Uh, This has never been an anti-male movement. I have a son whom I love dearly. But but I I think I'd be a little less patient. So I would step outside that entire matrix and just have a look back at it and say, okay, well, we're going about this now in a very different way. And it's women's leadership and it's women at the center of things. And you can join us. We couldn't be more pleased if you did. But join us or not, we're going ahead. And, and moving ahead on that. I mean, for example, when you, you mentioned earlier when when I, I first became friends with Maria Grazia, uh, when I first heard from her, I thought it was a joke, Justine. Robin Morgan and Christian Dior are not normally four words that you that you think of as going together. So, I mean, it's not that I'm frumpy. I, I, I clean up rather well. You're very chic. But I'm not, but I'm hardly haute couture. Um, and so I, I thought, oh, this must be, somebody's pranking me. And I ignored it. And I ignored it a second time. And it still kept coming into my website. And finally, I, you know, my assistant responded and it turned out to be real. But the interesting thing was that I was stereotyping her. That's so interesting. Yes. To my grief. <clears throat> and from the left, you began to get some things like, oh, well, haute couture. 
She can't be. She can't. You know, she, she's high, a high fashion person. What does she have to do with feminism? Without any investigation, without any looking at, you know, at the context, at the way this woman walks the walk, at what she has done with and for and of and by women. Uh, and the more that I learned, the more interested I became. And so then, right, you're quite right. I went to Paris. Uh, but it, this was all stereotypes. This had nothing to do with the real woman. Completely. I mean, when I was a, a student, I remember I was studying at Cambridge University and I, I went along and joined the, the Cambridge anti-sexist group. And I was uh-huh. told that I couldn't be a feminist. And I said, well, why? And it was literally because I wasn't wearing dungarees. I wasn't, you know, I think oh, I had some lip. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and I loved fashion. And I think that what has changed is that Maria Grazio has done a, a lot for this, that fashion and feminism are not mutually exclusive. But for you... Just tell us about that experience of collaborating with Maria Grazia, of coming to Paris for the show. Just what was it like? Well, well, she invited me to come for the show. You could have dropped me with a feather. Um, and so we all trooped off to Paris, myself, my son and my uh, daughter, Outlaw. Um, yes. Uh, and <laughs> as I call her, Blake, uh, my son and Janita. Uh, they're both wonderful musicians. Um, and so uh-huh. we off we went. Um, and it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I, when I met her, I, we just, she was masseur. We fell into each other's arms. Her feminism was so strong and she saw it so clearly as a means, as a means to publicize the issue of feminism, as a means to publicize feminist writers, as a means to spread the word, basically. It's, it's just like wearable propaganda, um, except it's not, it's not words that end in T-I-O-N and are boring and Marxist. Um, uh, she, she, I knew that the real woman uh, was a feminist when she said um, in an interview that I did with her, I think for Harper's, uh, where she, she she said, I hope that the T-shirts that I've made, which of course are luxury items, I mean, they cost a great deal and they're exquisitely made of fine linen and so forth, but I hope that there are knockoffs of them. That's so interesting. Incredibly cheap and are sold in street stands. And I said, oh, well, they're never going to publish this because the fashion industry isn't going to like that idea. And she said, no, no, no. It's very important that they get knocked off and sold um, to anybody for, you know, a dollar, a, a, a T-shirt, because that's the way we spread the word. Yes, it's literally spreading the word. Literally. And so w- when that did, in fact, happen and when the magazine published her saying that, I knew something was very different afoot in the fashion world. Because the fashion world previously had not necessarily been a friend to feminism. Uh, in some cases, perhaps it had, but, but generally not. And this was now a very different cup of tea, indeed. And she was, she was in there just pushing it. And I might add also, you know, n- not only feminism, she was pushing, pushing where, wherever she would be going, whether it was get, gathering fabric, for example, and uh, in a northern African country, she would set up a chain of battered women's shelters. Um, she would; th- these are quiet, behind-the-scenes things that she simply does, and that feminists do for each other. And it was a source of 
real sisterly pride that I watched this and came to call it my friend. You know, we 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 spent a couple of days in Paris. We attended the show, um, yes. which was my very first ever fashion show, Justine. So you can imagine I was agog. Um, yes. Uh, it was uh, at the uh, Musée de Rodin. It was very beautiful. We visited her in her workshop. Her wonderful daughter, Raquel, was there, her muse. And we became friends. And since then, the Women's Media Center has honored her. And she came to New York for that presentation. Uh, and we, you know, we send each other little, little, little gifts and presents like girlfriends. <laughs> so it's a, it's a lovely relationship. I'm very proud of it and her. You certainly influenced me as a young journalist through your really pioneering work um, with Ms. Magazine. At that time, and, and when you were editing the magazine, what was your view of fashion then? Because you said until not much. Yeah. Could, could you talk a bit about that? Sure. Actually, I've thought about it more in retrospect. At the time, I didn't. But, um, you know, I had kind of peppered my, since I came out of the new left, so-called new left, um, I had peppered my language with expletives to be, mm. you know, as tough as one of the boys. Um uh, you had to outdo them in their own game. And I was wearing combat boots and, um, you know, and jeans and the whole number. When Sisterhood is Powerful first came out, which was 1970, and the mm. same year as my book of poems, I took off for uh, a book tour around the country. And, and it was the first time I'd gotten out of New York in a very long time and the first time I'd gotten out of New York as a political person. And I found myself in... Iowa and Oklahoma and uh, small towns and large cities, uh, you know, around the country where there was maybe, maybe, maybe one feminist bookstore or sort of woman's bookstore. And there were these beginning bubbling energy filled small women's groups. Um, but a lot of them, interestingly enough, were housewives uh, and were women working at secretarial jobs and as nurses and just, you know, normal, average, everyday women working away their lives. Uh, and they did not pepper their speech with expletives and they were not wearing jeans. And I suddenly looked at myself and I thought, gee, my entire image is one that telegraphs to them. I am not you and you are not me. So I began to morph it. I morphed my image slightly. Uh, I I stayed with boots, but they were good boots. Yes. They were leather boots. and they were, um, I stayed with jeans, but they were fitted jeans. I transformed the top of me into silk shirts. Um, and I stopped using four-letter words, every other word. And the reaction was very revealing. And I thought, ha, huh, what do you know? So these things mean something. So they felt that you were on their side instead of... Exactly. I, I wasn't wearing a dress. Uh, there was a middle ground that I inhabited um, yes. uh, where I was comfortable. Uh, but the message nonetheless got sent. The shirts were silk. The boots were leather and good. Um, I'm sorry for the, that they, they weren't pleather at that point. <laughs> uh, but, but, but nonetheless, it, there was, it, it was my middle version of a middle ground. Um, and it was more recognizable to them and they met me halfway uh, and and I spent years on the road um, in that 
in that garb, uh, some version of that of that dress, uh, that that presentation. And from that point on, I realized the importance of that it had. Uh, I didn't realize the importance of fashion as a massive, transformative, industry-wide possible statement the way that Maria Grazia is envisioning it. But I, it was my small version of it, and and I've stuck with that ever since. Yeah. Uh, so you 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 were right. You were right, and you should. I want to go back and tell those people who told you that you weren't a feminist because you didn't wear <laughs> jeans. The hell with you. She is too a feminist. <laughs> I think I did wear jeans, but I also sometimes wore dresses. So. I th- oh my I think dear! That- how shocking. <laughs> I know it was very shocking. <laughs> I think also the other writer that I found. Very interesting, and I think it's interesting that Maria Grazio um, sort of explored her world in her latest show is is the writing of Angela Carter. Yes. Who, you know, was able to write very perceptively and often provocatively about makeup, about lipstick, about fashion. And she never saw that somehow fashion and politics and feminism could be, you know, she'd never separated them. They could all be discussed together just as fairy tales and, and philosophy and politics could all be part of the same conversation. Precisely, and she's a very good writer, as a matter of fact, you know, Mandela Carter. So, uh, yeah, you're, 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 you're right. She, um, and also I have to say that, that, that Vianita, my, my daughter outlaw, has educated me further even in, in recent years because she's an extraordinarily physically beautiful young woman. Um, and uh, and looks like a model. When 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 Maria Grazia met her, she said, "Oh, what a beautiful woman." Uh, she's just as beautiful on the inside, I must say, and that's the most important part. But she um, she was never under being younger. She she never saw a huge chasmic abyss between fashion and feminism. So she has educated me as well in terms of the crafts womanship the uh you know for example during this past year one of maria grazia's obsessions was to try to keep the factory workers employed exactly and those artisans yeah why don't people ever think of that that there's a whole vast universe behind the scenes of fashion that are people earning their living living their lives um uh and 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 who need to be employed and that was her obsession to keep them employed so yanata has uh, you know and she said I, I i um i came to my feminism in some way through fashion magazines which i think is interesting that's interesting that's very interesting having written about fashion but also having been the editor of harper's bazaar i <laughs> Do you think it's very important, the idea of the female gaze, that it's important in fashion, but indeed in, you know, in every other sense, that a woman's point of view can be expressed, that the female gaze is incredibly important and that female photographers are often very likely to shoot models and and fashion in a mm. in a different way to men mm. just as that a female writer will write differently and i think That's that right. there has been a problem in fashion and that it has tended to celebrate 
the male gaze for a long time. Yeah, I think that's very true. And sometimes to extremes. I, I can't remember who it is, but there's a very famous male designer who used to pose women as coffee tables. Yes, that's the photographer. Um, oh, the photographer. Perhaps. The fashion yeah. photographer, Helmut Newton. And yes. yes, I know yes. those images well. <laughs> Precisely. And that used to drive us, uh, us being the women's movement, um, bananas, you know. Uh, so, so you have those extreme situations, but but the 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 tilt, the shift in general, even if it's things like they're wearing these stunning <laughs> designer creations, and then they're wearing sneakers because that's really a comfortable thing to be in, and you can run in sneakers and you can kick in sneakers. And that's there's something absolutely that makes you grin about that. So if what you know, you could say in a sense that when fashion shifts, then then you've got a huge uh, seismic change. Um, and it does ripple out throughout the world. Um, people want to be like it. People want to imitate it. The knockoffs do promulgate the message. I think the other thing that I, I've learned as, as I've got older is that, I mean, to quote the wonderful American poet Mary Oliver, joy is mm. not a crumb. You know, I yeah. love that line of Mary Oliver's that joy, that pleasure is important. However hard the struggle that everybody has faced, whether, whether it's for, you know, against sexism, racism, you know, all the, the important things that we struggle for in our attempts for equality and freedom, that in the midst of that struggle, joy is still to be cherished and that yes. fashion at its best, and I think that this is where, why I love Maria Grazia's work, is that it, it can express it, that moment of joy. It can really spark joy and joy is not a crumb. That's right. Exactly. That's precisely it. Also, there's another aspect to that, but it's part of joy uh, for me, I think, uh, which is, how shall I say, excellence. Um, yes. There's there's a quality of uh, I, for example, always knew this was true about cooking. I I, I love to cook. It's a, I, I'm a good cook. Uh, I don't know if I'm a great cook, but I'm a damned good cook. Uh, yeah. And I and I take great care with good ingredients and making things just so, and it looks beautiful, and the presentation is nice, and it tastes divine, and so forth. Um, I'm lousy with uh, being a seamstress. <clears throat> Doubtless this is because my mother could not cook but was a wonderful seamstress. So <laughs> I, <laughs> so you see it reflected in the daughter. Uh, but, but there's a quality of if you're going to do something, try to do it well. Try yes. to do it really well because there is in that doing, whether it's politics, whether it's cooking, whether it's fashion – if it can be done really to the best of your effort or your satisfaction, maybe there's no such thing as perfect satisfaction. I mean, um, Martha Graham referred to the divine dissatisfaction, uh, that you could never get it perfect, but you could try. Well, that's what keeps us trying, isn't it? That to strive. Yeah, striving for excellence. And, and again, uh, when I began to notice just how how... The, how Maria Grazia's T-shirts were even just packaged. Let's just look at the packaging. 
The box was beautiful. The tissue paper was folded in tiny accordion pleats. That's attention to detail. Um, that's care. That's Now, granted, not everybody can afford this. Not everybody can do it. Not everybody can manage it. But when you can't, everybody can manage some version of excellence. And there's such pleasure, real pleasure in excellence, that that for me is part of your uh, joy is not a crumb as well. And what poetry are you working on at the moment? I'm working on another new book. Uh, A year and a half ago, I came out with Dark Matter, uh, which I'm very pleased with. I think it's the best work I've done ever. I would agree. I love it. (laughs) Thank you, my dear. Um, Thank you. Uh, And then last year, I came out with a novel, Parallax. Uh, And so now I'm working on, which I think is the best prose I've done in a long time, if if not ever. Uh, And then, so it's nice to be still, you know, cutting the mustard, as they say. Have you ever written poetry about clothing or about fashion? I have, actually. I've got... (laughs) This is so funny because I have a poem called The Lace Makers. You know what? It's a t- short poem and I'm going to get it and read it for you. Shall I do that? I was going to say, could you do that? Could All you right. get it and read it for us? So this is one of the new ones. This will be in the forthcoming book. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not out yet. Um, it's called the, Le- the Lace Makers. The little infanta princess of Spain was dressed in lace for her portrait. Yet courtiers thought her not perfect enough so added the dwarf to heighten her beauty. The painting is famous because of the dwarf. They also assumed it our duty for centuries to gladly go blind, tatting the edges of their nightcaps, cuffs, wedding hems, petticoats, kerchiefs, and veils, all without flaws, without even one, not one, flaw. They never perceived our revenge, that the flaw had to be so exquisite, perfected, minute, unseen and yet visible, it was safe from being detected. To this day, they don't see it. The flaw is the point. It's the necessity. It's everything. The work's lifeless without it. The bruise on the pear, the planet's wobble, the fungus, the mutation, the disobedience, the deliberate flaw in the Navajo blanket to let the soul out. That's wonderful. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, You're very welcome. I I have a fashion poem. There you go. I didn't even know that I had one, <laughs> but now I do. Now uh, you do. That's really wonderful. And we're hearing it for the first time. <laughs> you are hearing it for the very first time. This is its virgin read. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no subject that isn't ripe for poetry. I mean, and the, certainly that includes fashion. I think somehow we have to think of another word for it other than fashion. Yes, I agree. You know, hasn't it been so... Stereotype, debased, and, and debased. Really, it's yeah. yeah, it's 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 ceased. It's somehow lost its meaning, and and yeah. Well, if anybody could think of the new words, it will be you. Let's work on it. Yeah, you you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and Maria and Grazia and I will will form a trio. We do, and lots to look forward to. <laughs> 
Yes, I think so. I think so. I think it's very encouraging. I wish I were 21 again, but I'll make do with 80, even <laughs> if it sounds so grown up. I- <laughs> and what I'm hoping is that a time will come when we get through this pandemic where you and I can sit down and watch a, one of Maria Grazia's shows in, in Paris together. And then at the end of it, we'll we'll talk again and um, the conversation will continue. I would love that, Justine. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you. It's been a delight. It's an honour, a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. And thank you for everything you've done for women around the world.